and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm glad to be back as co-host, Bria Barthel. Back from a long trip. Glad it was restful. I'm co-host Sina Bazilahiki, and today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with correspondent Masha Miller talking with the CEO of Wildwood Programs about its recent merger with the Alternative Living Group. Then Devin Franklin from Flying Deer Nature Center in East Chatham talks about their programming and philosophy. Next, to help you prepare for fall temperatures, we bring back an archive piece on the warm and environmentally responsible fashion of Ecologic, a store in downtown Troy. After that, I spoke with Christoph Rags Di Maria, musical director of Will Kemp's Players, about their upcoming production, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And finally... Hugh Johnson is unavailable to join us for this episode, but we still have a brief piece from the Public News Service on the 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy. That's what we'll be talking about with Hugh next week. So first, here are the headlines. On Monday afternoon, Governor Kathy Hochul and Attorney General Letitia James announced an expansion of the state's red flag law, also known as the Extreme Risk Protection Order to stop people who pose a threat to themselves and or others from purchasing or possessing firearms. Recently released assessments of New York State students in grades 3 to 8 show mixed results. Overall, less than half of the students scored at or above grade level in English and math. For English, the percentage of students of grade level grew from 4 5.4, 45.4% in 2019 to 46.6% in 2022. But the 2022 math scores were much lower compared to 2019 pre-pandemic testing. One factor suggested for the drop in math scores is that parents may have had more difficulty teaching math concepts than teaching reading skills. Author Salman Rushdie's agent reported that Rushdie has lost sight in one eye and the use of one hand from injuries incurred in an attack on him in August at the Chautauqua Institute in Western New York. The Times Union reports that both gubernatorial candidates, Kathy Hochul and Lee Zeldin, have been gathering millions of dollars in campaign donations, primarily from big money and interests. A month before the election, Hochul has spent over $39 million with an additional $10 million on hand. Zeldin has balanced has a balance of almost $5 million. An area in Steventown, formerly known as Squaw Swamp, has been recently renamed Black Swamp as part of the U.S. Department of Interior's effort to remove offensive names from their properties. The city of Troy has allocated about 90% of the $42.8 million received in federal American uh, rescue plan funds. Recent awards total about $5.1 million to projects by a variety of nonprofits and $9.1 million to the city of Troy for numerous items, including $4 million for a new Knickerbocker Park pool and $2.5 million for one-time bonuses to employees who worked 
through the pandemic and other purposes. And our last headline, a look at early voting in New York State, comes from the Public News Service. Early voting begins in New York this week with in-person early voting starting on Saturday, October 29th. Early voting has been a popular option with New Yorkers ever since it was introduced in 2019. That first year, over 250,000 people voted early. Jeanette Senecal with the League of Women Voters hopes people will vote early if they can, although she worries whether they have the right information about how to cast their ballots. We had the pre-COVID rules, then we had COVID rules, and now we have the semi-post-COVID rules that people are going to be following. And so every voter really needs to confirm what the process is. Senecal adds with new rules surrounding voting, it's like being a first-time voter all over again. She also recommends that people be especially careful to understand ballot initiatives, some of which are cleverly worded to ensure they're not voting against their own interests. Anyone who needs to confirm how to vote can visit vote411.org or the New York State Board of Elections website. Senecal thinks turnout could be high this November given some of the issues at hand. A recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation found half of registered voters describe themselves as more motivated to vote than in years past. However, no one political party holds an advantage. Overall, Senecal wants people to take advantage of their rights and vote. People really want our democracy to work for the people and to make sure that we're running free, fair, and accessible elections because the people need to make the decisions. She says voting is the only way to ensure that people's voices will affect their communities. A recent Marist College poll shows some of the top issues for New Yorkers are inflation and preserving democracy. For Public News Service, I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And that's it for our headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your money and skills, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. And now to our first story. Wildwood Programs is a local nonprofit that, in their words, helps individuals lead independent, productive, and fulfilling lives. Correspondent Masha Miller recently spoke with their CEO, Lou Deep, about Wildwood's merger with the Alternative Living Group. Let's hear what she learned. I'm Lou Deep. I'm the CEO here at Wildwood. Um, I have been in the field of disabilities for about 30 years. I started as a direct support professional, and then I've been at Wildwood for 14 years. Uh, at first, as a kind of co-director of day services, moved into a, the chief operating officer role six years ago, and then took over as CEO two years ago. What brought you to Wildwood? So, interestingly enough, um, I had, in my former position at an agency up in Glens Falls, I had actually worked a few times with Wildwood, um, helping transition some, a couple of the students from our school uh, into day habs that we ran up north. And uh, all of my dealings with Wildwood were very positive. I remember it being, uh, feeling like it was a very professional um, very high quality organization and so when there was a posting that was very much in alignment with what I, what I was doing at another organization I felt like I wanted to interview for it and 
and I was lucky enough to get the position, and I've been here, like I said, 14 years ever since. Can you describe Wildwood? Sure. So Wildwood is a uh, organization in the community in the Capital District that supports people with disabilities and families. And recently, um, as, as you know, we, we grew um, by quite a bit um, when we merged with another organization in the community, but we're going to talk about that in a minute, I, I believe. Um, but Wildwood has supports. Uh, we have a large school program for children ages 5 to 21. We have adult services, we, so we have day programs, we have uh, employment, we have prevoke services, we have a lot of residential settings, apartments, homes throughout the capital region. We've been in existence since 1967, um, and uh, we, up until recently, we employed about 700 people in the capital region, but we now have m many more than that in our, in our community. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a great culture here at Wildwood. Um, we all work together to make sure that we further the mission, which is to advance the well-being for people with disabilities and their families. Um, and we also have a, have a, a focus on our workforce. We want to make sure that we have a workforce that's engaged and satisfied so that they stay with us and that they, those relationships that they form with people and families uh, stay in, in, you know, intact as long as possible. Why did Wildwood and the Alternative Living Group merge and join? Great question. So both of us were independent organizations in the capital region that supported people with disabilities and families. Um, we, were, we, had, we felt we had similar values um, when we started looking at a possible affiliation together. Um, we felt like the services that we both provided would dovetail nicely with each other and that if we were to merge that we would be able to provide people and families with a much wider range of services and that we could vastly improve their lives which is the main reason we went about this um, and and it's been almost two years in the making at this point and we were so excited that on October 1st we officially merged. How have things been going so far? So they've been going a lot smoother than I think any of us anticipated. Um, you know, when you merge two organizations of the size of Wildwood and the Alternative Living Group, there's a lot of things that, that could be barriers. But I think it's a testament to the leadership teams in both organizations and the boards um, that we got to this place as smoothly as we did. Um, I think people are really excited about the change. I think people are seeing it as an opportunity which we're always happy about. Um, we're happy to welcome so many more people into the Wildwood community now um, and to be able to you know, reach more stakeholders, broaden our support in the community. Um, but it's been going well. People are really rolling up their sleeves and saying, how can we best do this? How can we work together now? It's exciting to meet new people and work with new people. So it's been going great. What new opportunities will this merger bring for the ALG family? and Wildwood families? Great question. So I think that's going back to what we talked about in terms of now we have a much broader array, uh, array of services and supports. For example, for Wildwood families, self-directed now is something that we, they're very no, excited self -direction. about. self-direction. Self-direction, thank you. That is something that Wildwood is very, very, uh, Wildwood families have been excited about to learn more about. Um, they haven't. We haven't done that at Wildwood previously. Very little. 
Um, so we're, we're very happy about that. For uh, ALG families, I heard from a lot of them that they were very excited about like the day service options um, because ALG did not have day, day hab, um, either site-based or without walls. And that was something that a lot of people are looking for at, uh, you know, we're trying to expand so that we can serve more people in that. But it's, um, you know, that wait list in our community has grown a lot over the last few years as COVID had hit. And, you know, people are graduated from school and aged out and they haven't been able to find a day have that could take them. So I think that's the one area where we're, we're focused a lot on right now is trying to, to expand day have services so that we can start chipping away at that wait list. We're not moving buildings, right? What do you mean buildings? Do you mean office buildings? <laughs> so yeah, at some point, possibly, um, because as part of a merger, you're always looking for how can we be more efficient together. Um, and for a few reasons, it doesn't make sense to have two kind of corporate office buildings. Um, they still have a there's still there's still a lease on that building for a few years, so we're not talking tomorrow by any by any means. But you know, if it makes sense to have everybody under one roof so that we, you know, maybe save some money, we work better together if we're right down the hallway, then we're definitely going to look at that. Um, we haven't made any decisions yet, but it's something we're definitely looking at. You talked about relentless advocacy for families and individuals. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So I think that means, you know, never, um, never being okay with what we have. Um, I think that it's so important, and for so long, this field, people with disabilities, their families, have not gotten the resources that they deserve. Um, and that, you know, obviously that flows through the agencies. We haven't been able to pay staff as much as we, can, we should be for what they do. We haven't been able to expand services to be able to, you know, uh, provide more supports to people and families. Mm-hmm. So I think relentless advocacy is just that kind of belief that we have to keep pushing uh, for what we believe is right um, from, from our legislators, from the state government, governor, et cetera, um, that, you know, one COLA, once in the five years is not enough um, that it and and you know one one shot investments in the field are not enough we need sustained investment and the only way we're going to do that is to be loud and relentless in our advocacy how can families and individuals and mentors slash dad slash parents work the best Mm -hmm. I think we have had, a, you know, Wildwood was founded by families. And I think historically we've had a great relationship, partnership, collaboration with families. That's it's really at the heart of our mission. Um, but we need them to kind of meet us halfway. A lot of times, it, and I get it, life is tough. You're, you know, we're all very busy. But, you know, when we put out advocacy, you know, calls for advocacy, for example, we need families to really raise their voices. A lot of times... And, and I get it, like, you know, providers advocate, advocating becomes kind of white noise in the background, you know, but legislators and those who make the decisions do listen to individuals. They do listen to families. So that's a huge way that, that they can be involved. You know, Wildwood has opportunities on boards and board committees and internal committees for families to, to come and participate and, and do that and, and individuals as well. And so as those opportunities, as we kind of promote those, we would love to get people. Sometimes it's hard to get people involved. And I get it. Again, it's, it's time, it's energy, et cetera. But, you know, we want 
individuals and families to have a voice in what Wildwood does and how we provide supports. Those are the ways that, that people can be involved. Is there anything you would like to say I haven't asked? No, I, I appreciate the time to be able to speak about Wildwood uh, and, and our recent merger. Uh, like I said, it, it's, it was a huge effort by a lot of people. Uh, I'm really um, I'm really grateful for the teams that put it together and all the work because there was just a million moving parts. Um, but I think we've done so successfully, and I think people are excited. And I, I really I'm, I can't wait to see what the next several months to a year brings as we really do integrate these organizations and and the work that we're going to do together. Thank you for your time so much. Thank you. It was good talking with you. This is Mosh Miller from. Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Masha Miller interviewed CEO Lou Deep. And for more information about Wildwood, you can visit wildwoodprograms.org. East Chatham is the home of the Flying Deer Nature Center. In this segment, Devin Franklin, Program Directors, talks about the center's philosophy, its wilderness school, and his visit to the sanctuary campus. Fresh off of a tour around the campus, looking at the Garden Nature Lab, Freedom Square, and is now carrying around a deceased brown snake, we have with us Devin Franklin in the studio. Welcome. Hi, Sina. Thank you. Good to be back here again. Yeah, so let's start with who are you, and can you give us an overview of flying deer? Sure. Well, I have been uh, in love with backyards and the natural world ever since I was a little kid growing up down in suburban Virginia, playing out in the backyard and having some space to explore the stream and crack rocks together and see what happens when they do that and pulling up plants out of the dirt and and learning later in life that it's actually the remedy for poison ivy called jewelweed. And when I started meeting some teachers who uh, taught me just how much there is to learn right in a backyard, whether you're in rural country or right in the city, um, it's just endless things to discover. And even more important than that is, for me, the peace and the calm and the quiet that I feel when I tune into my surroundings. So I am part of Flying Deer Nature Center, which is a wilderness school and community located down in East Chatham in Columbia County. And um, we that's what we do. I basically get to keep living my childhood day after day after day um, with kids and adults who want to be outdoors and experience the joy of discovering the natural world. Mm. Isn't it wonderful when we get to take our childhood and make it into our our life philosophy and living? So yeah. more on the philosophy. So what, what are some of the other, other than your own experiences, what are some of the philosophies that build into the work that you're doing and some of the projects that you're working on? Sure. I just came this afternoon from... A public school, Ichabod Crane, down in Valencia, where I had a team of staff were um, working to get 
the students out of the school um, and, you know, the students and the teachers willingly come out of the school uh, every other week and spend uh, the less than an hour session with us right in their backyard. Uh, and we are discovering who's there. We call them wild neighbors. And uh, it's, you know, everybody from a blue jay flying over us. And actually, there's one blue jay that day after day, all day, I noticed was flying back and forth, back and forth, going this way with an acorn, going that way with nothing in their mouth. And um, was so steady that I just started, I just like, I'm going to name that blue jay Martha. <laughs> Don't know, you know, whether it's a male or a female, but that's just what I felt like calling. I was like, this, this, this bird deserves a name um, because it was so familiar. So we had fun watching the birds, um, identifying poison ivy. Mm-hmm. Which is tricky because it, in every season it looks very different. It really does. But we boiled it down to three things so that we can always, you always know for sure it's got these three certain identifying characteristics. And in fact, some of these students have been doing this program for four years. So when I give them the quiz at the beginning of the year, they nail it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like... Um, that's like all the kids that I work with in that program. They really, they not only, you know, are gaining the knowledge of who's out there, what's out there, what's going to hurt me, what's not, what do I not need to worry about? But my favorite thing is their faces. And like I can almost see their hearts light up like a light bulb when they come outside and they get to be the other half of the child that they are, which is the one that's allowed to be a little more wild, a little more free, a little more exuberant, and very curious about what's around them. So I'm just coming from that. And so there it is. I got to experience that with them because they've got it. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the collaborators right now that Flying Deer is working with is Sean Stevens from the Stockbridge-Munsee community. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about who he is and and your collaboration? Sure. Yeah, Sean has been coming out from his community in Boulder, Wisconsin, um, to our area, Columbia County, Berkshire County, um, kind of the the heart of uh, the Stockbridge-Munsee-Mohican traditional lands for... A long time, um, and we have fairly recently um, been connecting with him and talking and uh, and hearing his stories, you know, his people's story and stories about um, their life in their traditional home and the progression of stages uh, of their move out of their traditional lands to their current home, which is um, kind the, of like a, a pinball machine And the, the push out from the there. Pu- the push out, yeah, of the colonist push out. And so he's been telling stories, um, sharing that story with our staff, with our students, and recently with um, an open community invite um, at Flying Deer. And it's really, it's really... Um, it's deep listening, you know, it's, it's deep storytelling about that story and um, 
you know, how it's alive today, too, you know, and his people and his community in Fuller. So, so you're bringing kids outdoors, which is generally not in our standard education system. And you're working on storytelling, understanding the history of the Stockbridge Munsee community and our relationship with here. All of this is a part of unlearning from these kind of standard systems, these, these uh, um, regulated ways of, of education that have boxed us in. What are you seeing as a result from the participants in this kind of learning? Well, I think for me, what's most valuable for, for me about this is spending time with um, a person of this land. You know, so he, you know, he was not born here in his traditional lands. Um, you know, his home is in Wisconsin, but his ancestors, this is their land and the story is of this land. So for me, for me to spend time with somebody who um, has the place to share those stories and give their perspective, like that's the most, that's the thing I most appreciate is, you know, I'm sitting here with a representative, a voice, and uh, hearing what he has to say. And, you know, I suppose you know, many people have been asking him, I've been hearing over the, the months, um, what's the most important thing we can do, you know, as people, you know, colonists descended um, individuals who do live here and do call this place our home. He said, well, remember what I shared with you and, and pass it on. Um, we're, we're in that process. Yeah, it's good. So you came into the studio freshly off of a walk from the grounds of the sanctuary. And through the Our Town grant that the sanctuary received, we are hoping to work on a collaboration looking at urban ecology and working on an eco-art trail. What is, what is some of the inspiration that you've come off of this visit with? Oh, goodness. The last time I was here, um, I, I got a, a tour of the garden, which is looking beautiful and laden right now with, with just many kinds of fruit. And, um, you know, I got another layer of stories from Branda, you know, spot by spot. So and a deeper appreciation for the, the story of this place and this community, but also seeing the new spaces, um, the new nature lab place is like really cool the beautiful like map on the wooden border there mm -hmm. on the wall and meeting some other community members i haven't met and i'm just uh really excited to to you know collab for us for flying deer to collaborate with um the, the eco walk and i mean the walk we just took from the square freedom square to the garden was so much fun you know bringing it back again to the to the snake here mm -hmm. you know we there was this snake sitting on the sidewalk it wasn't in the bushes it wasn't in the weeds it was like right on the corner mm. of the sidewalk and i looked down I'm like oh garter snake you know every snake i see is a garter snake and i'm like wait did a double take no that's not a garter snake what is that mm. so um i think it might be a brown snake i'm gonna bring it home to my son to to help me identify it mm -hmm. um, but i think if people come to this eco walk, they will undoubtedly be able to see and share 
some folks, um, just how much there is to see in an urban setting. You know, like we were out there and I was asking Masha, who was next to me, you know, where's the closest hawk right now? Is there one around here right now? And we were checking out the birds and noticing a lot of them were singing and playing and fighting and eating. And it's like, huh, it doesn't seem like there's a bird around here, a hawk around here right now. But uh, another friend, Christian, who was staying there, he's like, well, we just live 12 blocks away. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, there is, we, you know, we used to have chickens and there is a Cooper's hawk that comes in every once in a while. And I'll be in my house and hear the chickens make that one kind of noise. And then, you know, and then the crows start coming in and it's like, oh, Cooper's hawk's back. Mm. And um, the beauty and curiosity of nature is like everywhere, including right here. And you have to tune into it. I was very fortunate to, my parents took us on hikes every Sunday. And until you actually are tuned into it and like learning new birds or, or the snakes, what I love about it is, is you start to see the world differently and engage mm -hmm. with it differently. Yep. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And we're looking forward to this collaboration with you. And Me too. Um, do you know the website for Flying Deer? www.flyingdeernaturecenter.org. Well, thank you so much. And we hope to have you back on the show. Thank you, Sina. We have our collaborations with Flying Deer Nature Center coming up. Much to look forward to. And we will be sharing more information about this kindling of a project, the Urban Ecology Art Trail, in these coming months. For those just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend or even joining our volunteer team. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Perhaps you're looking for some warm clothes to wear on your walk at the Flying Deer Nature Center. Well, if that's the case, we have a story about sweaters and other clothing available from the Ecologic Store in downtown Troy from our archives. Hi, I'm Branda Miller, and I'm very honored to be in the studio today with Kathleen Tesnakis, who is the president and designer of Ecologic, Inc. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. Can you tell us what is Ecologic and where are you located? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a recycling design company and I specifically take uh, old uh, cashmere garments that I harvest from used clothing dealers in New York and transform them into fabric and make one-of-a-kind clothing and accessories. Um, our studio does this in downtown Troy, New York. So um, we are there every day, Monday through Friday, and you can actually come into our studio and see the pieces that we make and um, even ask to come and see how we're recycling and what we're recycling that day. I have watched you since you've uh, come to Troy, which was, I believe, 16 years ago? Yes, 16 years ago. And 16 years ago, there wasn't as much action as there is now, but Troy has really um, gained kind of 
national and international recognition as a place for creative entrepreneurship. Um, how did you choose Troy, and how do you feel you're part of that blossoming DIY culture with your business, Ecologic? Well, I... Troy just really called me. Um, one of the things that I love about Troy is that it was the location of the first women's textile union. And uh, Troy was the location that produced um, Arrow shirts, Cluet and Peabody. We were had Factory Row on River Street. Of course, that all changed in the 1970s. Um, when I got here, I actually rented for my studio one of the last remaining um, rooms that was a sewing room that held 150 women in it. It was owned by the Marvin Neitzel Company. And so I was able to do in Troy what Troy had been doing for hundreds of years, at least 150. Um, that room gave me so much inspiration, knowing the women that have come before me and labored in the same ways. And I was very inspired to keep the tradition going. Um, I feel very strongly about uh, having opportunities in your local economy to make things uh, for your community and uh, alternative um, places to work. I think it's really important to have companies like that in communities. That's um, really exciting to think that the history of the women uh, in the textile industry in Troy is informing your work, which actually almost looks futuristic the way you use your work. Um, so um, what inspired you to become um, an artist with sustainable fashion? Well, I had been trained as um, a textile designer, and I had moved from New York City to Portland, Oregon uh, in the late, uh, well, uh, in the 90s, and I was having trouble figuring out um, what to do as a designer in my life. And I was not interested in making synthetic products. I was not interested in the overconsumption. And um, I, I was a little bit angry at how did I become a person that made things and was an artist designer when I didn't want to contribute to all the pollution problems. And I realized that landfill was such a huge issue that uh, in the textiles, nobody was reusing their textiles. It was just getting landfilled at the time. And so I um, sought to breathe new life into our old garments. And the thing that I knew was that wools were naturally biodegradable. They wicked away dirt. They're antimicrobial. So with the right non-chemically intensive handling, I could actually restore the fibers, transform them into new products that people would not even know were recycled. And that inspired me, that I could be selling my work in galleries, in boutiques, in department stores, and no one initially bought it because it was recycled. Uh, personally, back then, that was not something anyone was interested in, but I could sneak these concepts into the consumer's hand because it was beautiful and warm and comfortable. It's exciting to think about how you're integrating form and function. Yes. Um, and uh, politics and um, kind of self-care. Yes. Uh, because it feels very good to be wearing your cashmere clothing, and it's also really fashionable. Uh, what's When you talk about overconsumption and landfill and environmental issues, probably when you started as a designer, this wasn't as, um, you know, a mainstream as a discussion as it is now. But um, could you talk a little bit more about the overconsumption right now of the clothing industry that we are all part of and um, 
uh, kind of the ideas of breaking that cycle? Um, well, these days we really have an issue with fast fashion and disposable clothing. We are also having huge issues with microplastics. It's being eaten by fish. It's in our oceans. We're beginning to consume the, own pla our, the plastic that we're putting into the world. So it's just incredibly important that people understand that their body is their their skin is their largest organ, and um, how you know when you actually start paying attention to your body, you will actually function better um, in natural fibers. It, it takes some um, monetary dedication to make that happen for yourself, but it can really impact um, so many things in your life. Um, another aspect of that is the problems with fast fashion and how labor is uh, being sort of abused uh, by us consuming. We're not honoring the actual energy that's going into the clothes. The people are not being paid proper wages to make the items. Um, our items, of course, cost much more because I do try to pay reasonable wages and keep things in the community. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of challenges when we're out there trying to make decisions on purchasing. Uh, and I'm trying to provide an alternative um, and very much support the ideas that are, I mean, there's a fashion revolution going on right now, uh, ethical fashion, slow fashion. We are very much a part of this at Ecologic. Um, and even the circular economy, thinking about, um, you know, what is left after the impact of what you've created. That's great. So we are talking to Kathleen Tesnakis, who is the president designer of Ecologic. And you were just talking about fast fashion and slow fashion. For those of us who are not um, uh, as knowledgeable about what that means, could you explain that a little bit more? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think a slow, intentional fashion is, is, I like to equate it with organic food. You know, um, it's really uh, the different steps, the materials that are used, the impact of those materials on the environment, how they interact with the person, how who is making the item, how that person is being treated as they make the item, uh, those things are all being considered when you're looking into slow fashion and ethical fashion. Um, fast fashion is very much about the bottom line. It's about uh, providing you with trend and getting you to spend a certain amount of dollar every season to keep up with fashion trend. It's also very much about disposable products, not necessarily in their intention, but in the speed and the quality that they need to create to make a, a cheap product ends up making a disposable product. I know some people, you may have seen cashmere come through uh, a few years and, and even sometimes today where um, they're selling it very inexpensively. And one thing that really breaks my heart is I see these materials that go into the community for purchasing and come right into the waste stream within four months. And that's not sustainable. It's not healthy for any of us in any way, shape, or form. So that's sort of the definition of fast fashion. That's great. And so in a way, you're an environmental activ activist as a creative entrepreneur. Yes. 
And those are, uh, that's kind of an intersecting fields that are um, really attracting a lot of people to Troy today. Yes. Um, uh, you are really a leader in uh, creative entrepreneurship. Thank um, you. Yes. And so what um, words of wisdom and advice do you have for our listeners um, if they want to try to get into um, healing the world and, and um, uh, helping our environment through creative entrepreneurship? I think one of the most important things is actually um, participating in your community and supporting the small businesses and farmers that are, you have direct access to. Uh, I think by doing that, you're going to build relationships. You're going to keep your money in your community, which has a huge impact. And you're also going to find your path to that uh, at the avenue that you might be seeking. Uh, I think the people around you help draw out your special gifts, and you will be inspired immensely when you begin to connect and make those dedications. That's wonderful. And if people want to know more about Ecologic, um, can they come to your studio? Can they watch? Uh, what, if somebody wants to come and follow, follow up and learn more from you, yeah. see your fashions and um, get inspired... What? How do they do it? Well, um, there's a, a lot of ways, actually. Um, one, they can just uh, go to the computer and type in ekologic.com. You can see our one-of-a-kind pieces there. You can also, of course, come to the studio where it's all made. We're open Monday uh, through Friday, 10.30 to 5.30. Call for appointments on the weekends or off times, which we're happy to do. Your number and your address? And my number, 1 Fulton Street at Troy, New York, 12180. And we also so um, our one a company that's chosen to sell in New York City that we represent Troy um, in a Grand Central Terminal for the holidays. Um, I am there from November 18th until December 24th um, selling our homemade handmade products uh, to the rest of the world. So please, if you have family coming through or you want to come to Grand Central Terminal and see some fantastic artists, please come and see us there. Thank you. We really appreciate talking to you, your creative vision, you're keeping us warm, and you're keeping our environment healthy. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Kathleen. With fall temperatures kicking in, that idea of keeping warm with handcrafted hats, scarves, mittens, and sweaters becomes more compelling. And in this time of fast fashion, it's great to have a local organization supporting fashion while also repurposing used clothing. For more details, that website again is e. K-O-L-O-G-I-C dot com. And now we turn to Halloween with a look at the upcoming production of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow from the Troy-based theatrical group Will Kemp's Players. Will Kemp's Players will perform The Legend of Sleepy Hollow from October 28th to 30th and November 4th to 6th at the Art Center of the Capital Region. And to help us get spooked and in the mood, we are now joined by Christophe DiMaria, who wrote the script and gave music direction for this production. Welcome. Ooh, thank you. So glad to be here. It is a well-known story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but what is important to know about this story and its origins? Mm, so... Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow comes out of a long tradition of the Southern Hudson Valley telling and retelling ghost stories that have lived in that area for hundreds, if not arguably for some, 
thousands of years. Uh, for instance, as part of Washington Irving's research, he interviewed a lot of people in the town of Sleepy Hollow who talked greatly of leftover spirits from the Revolutionary War, for instance, a Hessian soldier who may have been decapitated by a cannonball still looking for his head. Or perhaps uh, there was known the Sintsink Wappinger Lenape people who were displaced from that area uh, were also known to hold powwows. And many people thought that they had seen spirits of the native people of that land also roaming about. And so Sleepy Hollow is actually a folktale that would have been known by the people at the time. And so Washington Irving, in a way, was taking field research notes and creating this story out of something that already existed. That is really interesting. So you, beyond this being an incredible story, what attracted you to the story and made you want to write the script and music for the performance? Ah, yes, well, not only have I been the playwright and the musician, I'm also playing the narrator, so I'll actually be performing. This play as an idea actually had its origin in 2018. I performed it as a one clown show, believe it or not, for the Fulton County Historical Society in Gloversville as part of their Halloween celebration. So uh, Samantha Saladino up there had popped the idea in my head about doing something Halloween-y, and I was... I was struck by the story of Sleepy Hollow for many reasons. I mean, one, its actual origins of folktales from the land, the sort of anthropological look at our very own area, or at least just south of the capital region, and the zeitgeist of the time, which is late revolutionary, early Victorian. You know, this was published in the 1830s and... Uh, has a lot of colonial references to the Dutch and the English. So not only does the actual creepy story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow and the horseman without a head attract me, but the idea that this is a time in America that's very complicated and very new um, and in some ways problematic, but also in some ways very much the primordial era of what becomes our modern life as Americans here. And in a time when we're looking at shadow and waiting for light, the time when we're isolating from one another, which can feel like a ghost story of its own, we are deeply entrenched in mythology and, and in our history as a way to stay in touch with the place that we are from and the people there and the people that were there. So you know, this story really came out of that for me. Um, and also it's just it's just darn well written. You know, it's it's very florid, elegant language that works trippingly on the tongue. So it was also a lot of fun to adapt in that way. And in terms of the music, I adapted several folk songs of the Catskills that were collected uh, over the course of several decades in the mid to late 20th century that... Uh, contribute to the aesthetic world that this play is set in. So the adaptation, how how do you take the story that is so well known and make it something that is your own and something of Will Kemp's players? 
can you walk us through some of your process of working with somebody else's work? Absolutely. So uh, it's one part research. It's one part divination. Uh, it is one part experimentation. Uh, you pour that over ice, you add a little bit of lime juice and bitters and you shake until completely uh, incorporated. Now, in all honesty, yeah. So I read and reread and reread and reread the original story to get a sense of the rhythm of the piece, right? As a Shakespearean troupe that Wilkemp's players is, our focus is very heavily on the language and the rhythm that lives in the language and how that language informs movement and informs emotion in how this play is to be performed. Uh, just like in Shakespeare's words, they're often what you call embedded stage directions where you can actually know kind of what Shakespeare wanted the actors to do by what he set down. In Washington Irving's text, there are rich descriptions of the world and what happens, including the very exciting chase at the end that we've adapted into a little surprise for you all. Um, it means that I also have to handle it carefully, right? Not, not as a sacred text so much, not, not that I'm not willing to change anything or, but I want to reflect the ethos of the poetry. And so in order to do that, there were a lot of edits. There's a lot of writing, speaking it aloud, walking it through my body, experimenting with other people, uh, performing this as a workshop piece uh, for actually a friend's father whose favorite story was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and who unfortunately joined the ancestors shortly after um, and just to see the effect that it had. And so after all those rewrites, we, we arrive at the Will Kemp's version, which Will Kemp's is what we like to call an original practices theater company, which means that we do Shakespeare in a way we imagine Shakespeare may have recognized, which means that there is not only an adherence to the text and an incorporation of music and dance that are within the world of the play, but also that there's audience participation and engagement, interaction, that the world of the play does not stop at the edge of the stage. It actually is behind us, around us, inside of us. And so we invite the audience to play along. And since this is a play about telling stories, the myth, the legend of Sleepy Hollow, we invite the audience to also participate in being characters in that legend. Uh, this also means that we perform with minimal tech. Um, you know, this is gonna sound funny, but we're, we're performing this at the Art Center right here in downtown Troy, which is a lovely black box theater. We normally perform outside uh, with the lights on or just like plainly in the sun with very little reinforcement. And this is actually one of the first plays in a long time that will have lighting cues and sound cues and some stage mechanics, but still it's, it's all very rudimentary for the purpose of keeping us in the storytelling world as participants, not as spectators, if that makes sense. When you walk me to, through that process, I can hear it being a complete total body involvement in the way that you're thinking and feeling and moving. And we are running out of time. I do want to, though, ask about the music, which the way that you were talking about the rhythm of the words, it almost sounds like the words in itself are a type of music. And um, when we think of being spooked, 
music is such an important element of that. Even the silent film Nosferatu used mm -hmm. either live performed or dubbed music to help translate what was happening. So just to wrap us up, can you talk about utilizing music to get that feeling of spooky and Halloween across? Yeah, absolutely. So there's music in the words. You're absolutely right, CNN. Thanks for uh, identifying that. The vowel sounds, sleepy hollow, you know, ooh, already has a bit of that in it. And then the music. So there are several folk songs from the Catskills that are pulled in. Um, and those are not necessarily for our spooky moments, right? Because it's all about tension and release. So you have to have release in places where tension doesn't exist, just like you have to have rests in music in order for sound to have meaning. We use uh, the available random instruments, uh, pieces of like industrial equipment, uh, a loop pedal. Um, we find the range of the human voice and see some of the strange and wonderful things that it can do in order to create tension. And there's even a little bit of classical music in there. Uh, you know, this piece is very devised in that sense. Um, while the text was written and the script was there, all the blocking, the music, everything was brought together by the actors. And so we experimented a lot with what sounds we thought would exist in a dark and creepy forest that we could create and repeat and loop in and make happen around you, behind you, in front of you, maybe even bone chillingly through you. Performances often feel like they are away from you and this feels like you're really bringing in the audience. There's the breaking down that barrier. So for listeners who are interested in attending, what should they know? Ah, well, first of all, this is a very family-friendly show. So while there will be moments of scary, scary tension, please feel free to bring the little ones. Um, there really is something in it for everyone. You can find uh, tickets for the show at uh, our website, willkempsplayers.com. That's W-I-L-L-K-E-M-P-E-S players.com or through our Facebook or Instagram accounts by the same name, Will Kemp's Players. And it will be at the Art Center at the dates and times you mentioned. There'll be a Friday evening show at eight. Uh, Saturday, we'll have shows at three and eight. So there's a matinee. There's still daylight. It's a little less spooky. And then Sunday will be a matinee only. But do come. Tickets are actually selling pretty fast. What's something that I forgot to ask that you feel like is so important to understand about this performance coming up? Ah, the other people. Uh, we have to talk about the fact that these costumes, which are going to be vaguely in the same era, um, the, the dramaturgy work that's been done by Ash Visker, the costumes that have been done by Sandy Boynton and Shay Fitzgerald, uh, the set... Uh, and props and puppets, yes, puppets, by Mike Lake and Phil Beatty. Uh, this is a very rich world. And so it has textural, visual, auditory, and tactile, and maybe even olfactory elements to enjoy. Uh, oh, and of course, a little bit gustatory, because of course, there could be pumpkin pie. Thank you so much for joining us on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Christoph Di Maria. Tina, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Will Kemp's Players is the only worker-owned, 
Shakespeare Cooperative in North America. For more information about this Troy troupe and its upcoming production, the website again is willkempesplayers.org. And in place of our usual weather segment, we bring you this story on Superstorm Sandy from Public News Service. Ten years ago this week, New York City was ravaged by Superstorm Sandy, what was then considered a once-in-a-lifetime disaster. But storms of the same magnitude are becoming regular occurrences. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is predicting several storms in the 2022 hurricane season will have a similar intensity to Sandy. And so far, they've been right. Hurricanes Fiona and Ian, which devastated Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Florida, had wind speeds and flooding much like Sandy did. Dr. Allison Brenko with the Nature Conservancy of Long Island says Superstorm Sandy was a wake-up call. And so I think people didn't always take seriously the possibility that a really big storm was going to impact us. So I think ever since Superstorm Sandy, local governments, communities, people, businesses have all been starting to think and plan a lot more about the possibility of big storms like that. She adds storms like Ian and Fiona have been bringing more rain to inland areas away from the shoreline. One easy way for people to plan for big storms Brentco advises is checking flood zone maps online. In doing this, people can see the kind of zone they're in and figure out what their risk of flooding is. Brentco finds people think climate change is a future problem, but its effects are here now, even though it's hard to say when the next superstorm will occur. As storms continue growing in intensity, she feels communities need to have a plan to deal with more rain and flooding. However, in doing this planning, Brentco notes rising groundwater is often overlooked. So in a lot of coastal communities, that's actually the first impact people are seeing from sea level rise. Before you start to have shore flooding, a lot of times the groundwater is coming up and it's backing up in storm drains and you're seeing a lot of road flooding around the storm drains. She says communities should consider what critical services could be vulnerable, which residential and business areas are vulnerable, and how to make them safer. For Public News Service, I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Sorry Hugh Johnson won't be here to tell, to tell us about the weather forecast for this coming week, but tune in next week for Hugh's look back at Superstorm Sandy and look forward at our upcoming weather. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host and engineer, and we want to thank all of our volunteer producers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's program are Bria Barthel, Masha Miller, and Brand Miller. And if you, um, and we welcome you to join our team. Learn more, share audio skills, create stories from these stories that you hear in your community. And this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. All episodes and individual stories are available on demand 
at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.